worship the person and work of Jesus. Um, Jesus, we believe, is God, who is also God's son, a member of the Trinitarian God that we worship, that we love, that we adore, that we celebrate, because he, he lets people like us who stumble and fall and, and don't worship him rightly to be made right with him, not through a merit or work or act of our own, but through the purchasing work of his son. So we always get to celebrate what he does and never celebrate what we do, and that's actually good news to us. We think that's actually great news for us, that when you stumble, when you fall, God celebrates his son in you and not you in you, okay? So if you're in here and you don't have a perfect life, that's good news to you, right? You're, you're, you're amening in your heart with that. And so um, that, we do that a number of ways. We, we sing songs like we were just doing that talk about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. We also read the scriptures. We sit under the scriptures to learn more about what Jesus has said to us. We believe that this is the only perfect thing that exists on the earth. And so therefore, as we look at it, it perfects us. It shows us who God is and it makes us more like him. And so uh, we love the Bible. We love the scriptures. We also worship Jesus by giving. If you, We always say this is your church home where you feel like God has called you to identify and labor and serve. We give in the small little silver boxes in the back. Um, and we also worship Jesus by taking the Lord's Supper every week where we get to see visibly and remember that Jesus broke his body, shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. So um, let's, we're going to enjoy that. I just want to um, ask God to help one more time. We've got to remember uh, constantly as we come in here that, that it's not just about you gleaning information. Okay, I know I say this repeatedly, but I want us to keep remembering the goal is not that we leave here knowing more. The goal is that we leave here so that theology creates good biography, which results in good doxology. So it changes who you are as you learn more about God, but that results in worship of his name. Now, here's the thing. You can't change you. Like, you can't transform. You have no innate power to do that, so we need something outside of us to do that, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. So let's, let's ask God to do that right now. Why don't you pray along with me as we, we ask God for help. God, we thank you for your Holy Spirit, that it is an instructor, a truth teacher, an illuminator, a comforter. God, would the Holy Spirit of God do things in us that we can't? Father, would you help us to live lives where we can be anything but liars in this place? We confess rightly, wrestle where necessary, and lean back into Jesus, trusting in his finished works so that we can live lives to the fullest of joy and greatest of glory to your name. Help us this morning with a difficult text in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 14. We're going to finish Luke chapter 14 today. And I was kind of joking with uh, Pastor McKinney last week. He, he started and he kind of dropped me off at such a nice light uh, section uh, where Jesus is going to tell us to hate our family. Okay, so uh, I thanked Mike in advance for giving me such a nice warm text to follow him in. Uh, but, but here's what we're going to do. We're going we're to look at Luke. We're going to finish Luke 14 this morning, start Luke 15 next week. In October, we're going to start, uh, just take a little break, about five weeks teaching on the acts of worship, why we gather and do the things we do here as a people. Why do we believe in preaching? Why do we believe in the Lord's Supper? Why do we believe in being generous? Why do we believe in prayer? Why do we believe in singing? We're going to kind of walk through those and then get back into Luke. Uh, but right now, we're in Luke chapter 14. Uh, that's where we're, we're rolling it. And basically, Luke is, is writing. He's a physician. He, he was a beloved friend of Paul, and, and he walked around and basically was uh, recounting the life and teachings of Jesus. There are four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And he gives us Luke. And, and Luke is really to lay before this guy, Theophilus, who we believe was likely a, a Roman official who was probably skeptical of the things of Jesus, to, to show him the life and teachings of Jesus are not only trustworthy, but they're transformative. So um, it's not just about seeing what he did, but letting that bear weight on your soul, letting it go after your heart, and being changed more in the likeness of Jesus because we're seeing him and looking at him and worshiping him. And so he's in the last year of his earthly ministry. Uh, it's probably just a few months before his death at this 
this point. Uh, he's been going from town to town, village to village, city to city, and here's what he's doing. He's proclaiming the kingdom of God, and with the proclamation of the kingdom of God, which is basically, hey, there's a realm that's, uh, that's a kingdom. It's a perfect kingdom. The only way you enter that kingdom is through the act of a king who rules that kingdom. We know that king is Jesus. And so um, he calls people to follow him. Now, here's the thing. As he goes, there's absolutely grace, compassion, mercy, kindness as he calls people to follow him, to know him, to set their allegiance to him. But, but, but it doesn't mean it's not demanding. Okay, so yes, there's love. Yes, there's grace. Yes, there's mercy. But it's a demanding call. It's a, it's a weighty call because he believes, which he is, more valuable than anything your eyes will ever see. That, that, that you truly finding your greatest fulfillment and, and place and purpose and worship of God in Jesus is what ultimately will satisfy your soul. And so he's going to continue to show that the true call to follow Jesus isn't a call to self-fulfillment. It's a call to self-denial. That, that's the true call to follow Jesus. It's a call to sinners to submit everything to Jesus for their joy and his glory. It's really a call to find life in your own death. So in this particular one, Jesus is going to show this morning that he doesn't just go after your behavior. He goes after your heart. You're going to see this all the time with Jesus. Because some of us, if we're honest, all you want to do is be a nice person for Jesus. But like you want to just serve well, attend some Bible studies, right? Maybe get on the parking team, you know, welcome people. But man, don't touch my heart. Right, Jesus? Like, don't go after the, the deep, dark, secret spaces that no one sees. Just leave me alone. Let me look good externally. Here's the thing. Jesus loves you too much for you to just be some moralistic, externally nice-looking person who warms a seat on Sunday because that doesn't result in worship and true joy. That results in a disgruntled heart that puts other things as God, whether it's your worship and acts of God becomes your God, your service becomes God. God doesn't become God. So whatever takes the place of God doesn't lead to peace, doesn't lead to joy, doesn't lead to ever lasting fulfillment. So he's going to show us whatever is God above me is going to destroy you. Whatever you take is good and lovely and make it ultimate will ultimately destroy that thing and you and your soul. Okay, so here he's going to show us, I'm going to aggressively go after your heart. And here's the thing, Jesus repeatedly attacks right action that doesn't flow from a right heart. So, so it doesn't matter what your actions look like if your heart is dysfunctional. But he wants to get at what is truly the issue, not just get at symptoms, but get at your disease. That's what Jesus will, will continue to do. And I, I love this about Jesus. He's not a salesman, right? We've been seeing that really in Luke 14. He's not trying to con anybody. He's not trying to sell you on something. He's just, at the end of the day, very simply honest. He just lays it for me. And here's what's funny about this text right here. You know, in modern America, we're all about trying to grow the crowds. Jesus seems to want to wean the crowds whenever he preaches. So look at what he says here in verse 25, not in the most seeker-sensitive sermon. Here we go. Luke 14. Now the great crowds, there are great crowds. These people are interested, some faithful followers, some people just intrigued, some people just want to oust him like the religious elite. He turned to this crowd filled with lots of different types of people, right, who are waiting to listen, waiting to hear. And here's what he says. He says, if anyone comes after me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife, at this point you're like, okay, that's good. Like, let's stop. And children and brothers and sisters, okay, that's good, Jesus. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Okay, I want to get something very clear out of the gate. Jesus is not here talking about the object, objective content of the gospel. 
Okay, he's not laying before you that he is God, that he is redeemer, that he is savior, that he is king. He's, he's not laying out for you about his, his atonement, his shedding of blood. Now, these are all historical realities that we must believe in the gospel to be saved. Okay, but he's not laying before you explicit objective content of the gospel. What he's laying before you is the subjective attitude of the person who comes to the Christ of the gospel. You, you tracking with that? So, so he's saying, okay, yes, the gospel's objective. You believe the realities of his finished work that he alone purchases you and ransoms you to God, but the attitude of the person that comes to this Christ who ransoms you and saves you, there's an attitude about them. There's an attitude towards the Christ of his gospel in their hearts and in the way that they approach it. So what type of commitment must one make to the Christ of this free gospel? That's the issue. And Jesus has been saying this all over, and we saw even last week and the week before, he's getting at the issues of our heart, and he brings up the issue of family. Now, we do have to do a little bit of homework here because throughout the scriptures, some of you guys are going, but I know all the texts in the Bible that talk about and Jesus commanding me to love. So what's this love, hate? I mean, I know in Ephesians 5, I'm called to love my wife, love my husband. Right, we know that Jesus himself says, love your neighbor as yourself. So how can Jesus now, is he like schizophrenic? Is he tongue in cheek? Is he, why is he telling us to hate? What's the language that Jesus is trying to get at here? And um, is he talking about some bitter, angry, hostile attitude? Uh, that'd be contrary to everything Jesus taught. It actually tells you to rid yourself of anger and malice and deceit. Um, you have to understand that, that what Jesus is laying before is a very common Hebrew expression. You'll see it throughout the Bible. You might even recall Jesus saying, um, no man can have two masters. He must love one and hate the other. Always, every time this this, this lingo, this language is used, it's preference. It's you love something more and love something else less. Okay, you, you can even see, um, I think in the, in the Old Testament, confirmed in the New, where it says, he loved Jacob and hated Esau. That doesn't mean that he actually, in his feelings, despised Esau and loved Jacob. It's, it's preference, his covenant, his promises, his special love towards was special for Jacob. His preference was for Jacob and not to give Esau the blessing, Esau the covenant. It's always an issue of preference. It's an issue of loving something more than something else. Language in Matthew helps. Matthew recounts the same text. He says, if anyone doesn't hate their mother, brother, sister, father, he says, and loves them more than me, he cannot be my disciple. Very helpful. The whole issue Jesus is getting at here is the implications of our hearts towards God and anything else we hold in ultimate above God. So the whole issue here is preferring something over another. So here we're not being commanded by Christ to emotionally hate our family. I'm, we're not, Jesus isn't saying you go home, don't speak to them, throw the garbage on the floor, tell your wife to go you know, take yourself outside and mow the, mow the grass. Like you'll get, that won't work out good, okay? You'll, we'll probably end up in premarital marital counseling, okay? So, so what you want to do is look at this rightly and really check your heart. See, that's why I said, Jesus is always going after your heart. What do you love more? Do you love me? Are you willing at the expense of everything else in your life to make me ultimate? And here's the thing we're going to see. When you make God first, everything else works out well for you. 
When you love Him more than everything else, your marriage, your parenting, your job, the ways that you see people, your appeasement, your inner security, your identity all works out better for you when God is first, when God is preeminent. So here the issue is while your priority has been solely directed towards those that kind of chart your course closest to you, your parents, those who you love, your relatives, now Jesus charts your course. When you come to know Jesus, they all take second seat. But your allegiance is now to him and him alone. Now, some of you guys get this on the deepest of ground level, right? Some of you, many of us come from unbelieving families, and you decided one day you met Jesus. You saw his glory. You saw his goodness. You saw his saving work. You said, yes, I want Jesus. I want to lean into him, trust him, follow him. You counted the cost, and now family times at Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve are awkward, uncomfortable. Maybe there's some mockery. Because what? You, you choose Jesus first. Jesus is your allegiance. Some of you are in marriages where you have an unbelieving spouse and you say, I'm going to go to worship. I'm gonna gather with the faith family because Jesus is first. Jesus is, is getting at your heart. Is he your allegiance or is he not? Is there lordship there or is there not? That's what Jesus is laying before us. Who takes priority over all other demands? and relationships in your life. And Jesus is revealing, I think, a, a temptation that's prevalent to all of us, and that's to make your family God and not God God. Now, I'll, I'll say nine times out of 10, when I meet with people, whether it has to do with the family or marriage, or nine times out of 10, the reason there's a lack of contentment, a lack of joy, a lack of, if there's any kind of conflict, nine times out of 10, you know what the issue is? God is not God. Every time, every time I meet and I listen and we walk and we talk, every time the issue is my husband's really God, my wife is really God, my children are really God, my relatives are really God. And so when you do that, you're placing on them an expectation they cannot fulfill. So there's inescapable conflict in your life when you think, okay, in my man, I'm going to find all my joy, all my life, all my fulfillment. So the moment he screws up or doesn't lead you well or isn't faithful in some way, you're out. Well, you just made a functional God who never was designed to be God in the first place, God. So that's why you're totally off the rails. Instead of being tethered to Jesus and what he's done and the security you are in him saying, now I'm free to give, free to love, free to serve because it's not tied to how you act, your tantrums, your idiosyncrasies. I thought were cute when I married you and now I want to train him out of you. Like that's not what he's saying. He's saying now you solely can give, serve, love because the gospel's done something to you that's otherworldly and you're so secure in him that every other relationship is second place. So, so if God is not God in your life, your marriage will hit the wall, your parenting will hit the wall, there will be angst, there will be aggression, there will be discontentment, there will be lack of joy. When work becomes God, it's the same thing. You can fill in the blank. When God is not God, everything in your life goes off the rails. And so here Jesus is showing us, the call to me is for me to be God in you. Not just some cute little teachings. Like if you think this time together is just for you to like boost your self-image, like you're totally missing it. This is not about some like cute little teachings for you to have so you can go throughout the week. We're talking about not a power inside of you, an intense power outside of you that raised Jesus Christ from the dead that secures you in a new family, gives you a new mind and a new heart, a new identity so that you walk and see the world and see people and see relationships differently. That, that's what we're seeing here in the text. 
So maybe some of us have made our wife or our husband or our children ultimate, so your pursuit of fulfillment and life and happiness is dictated by your family's existence and not the roots that grow deep into who you are in Jesus. So when God remains God, the ver- when the vertical's healthy, brothers and sisters, the horizontal's super healthy. Because you, when you're receiving everything right from Jesus, who you are as a blood-bought citizen of the kingdom, the ways you operate in marriage and with friendships and over your children works well. It works right. Now there's no 1 Corinthians 13 keeping records because the love that bought you and purchased you secures you in, secures you in a way that's otherworldly. Because you were bought, secured, and paid for, not because of how well your tantrums were on a given day or how well you were faithful, how loving you felt on a given day, or Jesus does it permanently, unconditionally. That blows our minds and allows us to be who we are. So here's the great news in all this, guys. Um, The job description that your children have and the job description that your husband has and your wife has is something only Jesus can slot. That's good news. So if you're putting a job description on your wife or your husband or your children that, that God never put on them, you need to do some heart work. You need to do some surgery. You need to ask yourself, is God first or is God not? And Jesus says he's first not only in relation to those around you, but in your view of your own self. So it's not just how this affects everybody else around you. He says even you need to die to yourself, your own interests, your own wills, your own wants, your own desires. He says here in verse 27, whoever doesn't carry his own cross, whoever doesn't bear his own cross cannot be my disciple. Now, the cross here is not some mythical idea. This is an instrument of torture. It's signifying death, death to self. This isn't like some theoretical, hypothetical idea. This is a total dying to you and a total living to Jesus' wants, Jesus' desires, Jesus' demands for you. He's saying you are carrying your own cross and finding life in me. Now, now this is, we live in a day of such easy believism, right? So, 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 so maybe, um, you know, uh, there are a lot of things that, that happen where, um, I don't know what you've experienced, but you might have heard, well, I, I want to go to heaven, so you raise your hand, and then you're good, and then you're saved from hell, and you can still live like hell. Like, it just doesn't really matter, so I'm secure, and I'm good. But, but in between your conversion and your resurrection is what's called discipleship. The call of discipleship, which is an increasing love, devotion, commitment to Jesus. And somehow that all gets missed. So we want to be secure. We want our fire insurance, but we don't want to grow, don't want to mature, don't want lordship, don't want him engaging my heart, so we'll leave it at bay. Well, that's not what it means to be a Christian. That's, that's not the call of discipleship. That's a call of saying a chant. That's a call of, I don't know. But Jesus shows us something else. Jesus shows us what it really means to follow and be devoted to Jesus. And understand, Jesus is no hypocrite when he asks this. Jesus is the only religious leader or teacher who can actually make this kind of claim. Anyone else is a cult leader. Because Jesus' family himself abandoned him. Jesus, his family himself said, hey, you're nuts, you're crazy. Hey, you had Judas betray him. You had Peter and Thomas deny him. Jesus understands this. Jesus says this with full authority and full identifying with what you're walking in. Jesus lived this. And Jesus is saying here, follow me. So we can't say I'll follow Jesus unless I start getting treated like Jesus. Because you know what 1 
John, I think it's 2, 6 says, if you claim to abide in Jesus, you must walk as Jesus walked. You must look like him. See, it, this idea of being a Christian, even being a good Christian, so screwed up in our culture, right? We hear, hey, to be a good Christian means you don't cuss a lot, or be a good Christian means you don't, you don't drink, or be a good Christian means you wear a suit and tie, or to be a good Christian. No, to be a good Christian means you look and act like Jesus Christ. Like, that's what it means to be a Christian. Christian means little Christ. So you look at him, you look at how he lives, and you see Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11, hey, imitate me as I'm an imitator of Christ. So a lot of us say, man, I'd love to follow Jesus, but if I start getting treated like Jesus, I'm out. That's not the call to discipleship. That's not conversion. That's not salvation. So Jesus is going to give us two illustrations to help us, and these are weighty, so let's look at them. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and wasn't even able to finish. Now, you've got to understand, ancient Near Eastern culture is a big shame-honor culture. So if your shame is at stake, man, you are, you're watching yourself, and it's a big deal to keep and preserve your honor. Okay, that, that, that's huge. So, so here you've got this basic illustration where um, Jesus says, you're going to do something as daunting as build a tower. Now, probably a watchtower, because this was very common in their day, building a watchtower. So if enemies were approaching, they could see everything. Goes, if you're going to build a watchtower, I mean, if you're going to do something as daunting as that, who's not going to sit down and count the cost? Hey, if I'm going to build this thing, do I have the right resources? Can I finish this thing? God forbid you don't finish it. And then you're, there's a permanent mo monument made of your mockery where everybody says, look at how stupid that guy was it's a dilapidated tower he didn't even finish so what in the world is Jesus saying in showing us this illustration Jesus is saying don't just come to me solely on some emotional level like, like, like don't just say yes to me because you're looking for some escape from something and I'm the next best thing this is very common in church don't just come to me because there's been trauma and you feel like, okay, well, maybe the Band-Aid for my trauma is Jesus. This isn't escapism. There's something much more deep happening, something much more weighty, much more real, much more staggering in the gospel. And Jesus is showing us here, these are the people who say, yep, take two steps and go, never mind. Maybe it's from you beginning to busy yourself with just religious activity, but you never wanted to engage your heart, never wanted to engage your, his lordship. And so now your, your whole life is just a, a, an existence of morality. But you don't worship God, you don't pursue God, you don't love God, you don't have affection for God. God's saying, so I'm not God. You're still God. You're still God because you still want to run your life. You still want to look good in front of other people. And you buy the lie that if I can just make myself look prettier, then everybody else will like me instead of the good gospel truth that says God loves you when you're ugly. And in that state, that creates joy in worship and a great love for others that empathizes. So Jesus is showing us that you start building and never get past the foundation and all you're left with was a dilapidated tower. Count the cost. When you, when you trusted Jesus, did you count the cost? He's gonna... I'll show what that, that means a little more. And it, it just remind me of the rich, rich young ruler when we think about heart issues, right? The, the rich young ruler, I don't know if you know, you're familiar, he comes and he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? 
And Jesus says, um, well, let's talk about your sin. And he goes, I don't have any. He goes, all right, let's talk about who's in charge. He goes, not you. Oh, end of that discussion. Jesus left. You can't be my disciple. You're not going to let me be in charge. Jesus constantly goes after the heart. Look at this quote I read that, that is, we could really close in prayer after this, but John Stott, regardless of what you think about him, he is a phenomenal theologian, and he said this, and it goes well with what Jesus is talking about. He says, the Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish. For thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. This is the great scandal of Christendom, so-called nominal Christianity. In countries to which the Christian civilization has spread, large numbers of people have covered themselves with a decent but thin veneer of Christianity. They've allowed themselves to become somewhat involved, enough to be respectable, but not enough to be uncomfortable. Their religion is a great soft cushion. It protects them from the hard unpleasantness of life while changing its place and shape to suit their convenience. No wonder the cynics speak of hypocrites in the church and dismiss religion as escapism. Let's close in prayer. Friends, the call of discipleship is far more than escapism. I mean, we are not merely trying to band-aid our souls. We're not trying to band-aid our souls with mythical thoughts and positive thinking. We have actually grabbed hold of a real kingdom with a real king. Like, those of you that are Christians, you've actually crossed from death to life. Like you've actually entered into, become a co-heir with Jesus Christ. That eternal riches, all that God has, all that God is, is yours. Like, like that's not escapism. Like that, that, that's not band-aids. That is, a, that is a regeneration, the Bible calls it. A making totally new. Like you've grabbed hold of something real, something that's not theoretical, something that's not mythical. In the end, all that stand before God will be judged on the righteousness of their works, which no one can stand on. So those that have Jesus say, I'm your champion, I stand in your place, get thrown into heaven in the gates of glory with God. That's, that's real. That's real for you. The kingdom of heaven is real. I love the way that, that uh, the, the writer of Matthew says it. Matthew 13 says, The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. Then in his joy, I love it, in his joy, not begrudging submission. In his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. He says, The kingdom of heaven, God is this treasure. When Jesus says, Come and follow me, he goes, How much do you want me? Because this man sees the kingdom of God. He goes, man, I can have God. It's like this treasure. I don't care what you take. I'll sell everything if I can just have that treasure in this field. 
I'm not trying to escape anything. I see something better, something more pleasurable, something more satisfying than all that's around me that my soul just dissipates in. I see the only thing that sustains it well and keeps it going. I want that. I want to invest in that. I want to follow that. I want to grab hold of that. And he lays before us this amazing, amazing, amazing picture. So God is going, you want to compare me to what people think of you? You're going to compare me to your relatives? You're going to compare me to your husband and wife? You're going to compare me to your children? Those are good gifts that we steward well. We'll see in a second. But hold on a second. Is God God? Or is everything else ultimate where you're falling off the rails? Because unless you love me more and love them a lot less, not fit to be my disciple. That's what Jesus says. Do you want to know the, the truth about God? This happened to me. I, I talk about this a lot, my conversion story. Uh, I, I may have been converted, though. I, I don't really know. I grew up in a, in a solid Christian home where I was taught the scriptures, and it was my first year of college at a, at a seemingly Christian college uh, where I was not taught things of the Bible were all true and all inerrant and all inspired and all right, and so I had this, like, crisis of faith where I got in my dorm room, locked myself in, and read Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, and I'm just going, God, tell me who you are. Tell me what you look like. Tell me who I am in light of you, and I felt like I kept coming across scriptures, and I'm going, why didn't anybody tell me this? And, and as I'm, I'm sitting here reading, God was revealing the truth about what he thinks and what's true about him. He, you know, he thinks he's so great and he is so great that you should take one look at him and go, no way. No way. You, you, you're gonna let me in relationship with you. Wait, wait. You're gonna love me in, in light of your infinite perfections and undeniable holiness and glory, the weight of glory that stands before me and the right wrath that stands over me, you're gonna love me in that state of my rebellion of the darkest nights I've ever had and the secret spaces no one knows about. You're gonna say and whisper in my ear, Christ made him who knew no sin to be sin for you, Mike Reed, so that in him he might make you the righteousness of his son. He, he thinks he's so great that you should be begging to have him. Not this, man, eh, I'm not really sure. He thinks, the truth about God is he thinks he's so great. He's going, anything, I don't care, job security, financial security, man, changes in my family, discomfort, whatever. I gotta have you. Man, I just gotta have God. I have to have this gift of righteousness outside of my own. That's how God really feels. He's not looking for people that are like second-guessing the value of following him and going, hmm, I'm not really sure, God. I don't know if you're really glorious. I don't really if you're really big. I mean, I know you made all the galaxies and planets and everything's orbiting right because of you, but man, you made me, and I've only been existed for like 30 years. You've existed for eternity, so maybe I know better than you, even though I flunked first grade. Right? I mean, this is how we, this is the silliness of the things that we say, right? And God's going, no, you want me. This is why Jesus can make statements like this. Do you understand that? Because it's true. He, if he was a total hypocrite and a total liar, let's throw him in the bag, close up shop, and leave. But because this is true, he can say statements like this. You want me? Come after me. Uh, you want to put me over your stuff? Me over your spouse? Me over your children? Me over your vocation? Me over your life? Okay. God's going to stay God? Okay. That's Jesus' call. 
because he knows his worth and he knows how good he is and he knows. So the gift of salvation is not a gift that you take and that you throw in your closet with all your other trinkets and toys. It's a on the mantle object of worship. I have this, I've found this. Look what he says in verse 31, the second illustration. It's gonna help us see this. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able to, with the 10,000 to meet who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. So the first illustration is voluntary. The second one is involuntary. You got, a, you, got a, you got an army coming at you, and he gives this illustration of a king, any good leader, sees an army of 20,000 coming towards him, looks at his own and goes, man, I only got 10. So he, he, he kind of figures out, man, is there another way I can beat, defeat this army? Is there another strategy I can use? And if he realizes at the end of all that, man, I'm done. There's just going to be a ton of spilling of blood. Nothing's going to work out. Man, I'm going to send a delegation and go, hey, look, I know this isn't going to end well. Can we at least reach terms of peace and not put blood in harm's way, not put my people in harm's way? Sure, we lose a little freedom, but man, we don't lose our lives. And what is Jesus saying? Whenever you come across something serious that has serious implications for you or those around you, you count the cost, right? And he says, salvation is more serious than any tower you'll ever build and any army you'll ever face. This has eternal implications. So why would you treat that apathetically if you're gonna spend time counting the cost and building a tower, counting the cost as you see the enemy approaching? Are you not gonna count the cost when I say to follow me? So we say, yes, I believe you're God, Lord, Savior, Redeemer, King, Messiah. Okay, then the one that gets mixed. Next question, um, I'm gonna take priority over your family. I'm gonna take priority over you. I'm gonna take priority over your stuff. Mm, no, Jesus, okay, I'll see you later. Jesus is showing us the true cost. These are people who counted the cost a long time ago in this one. So later when God comes and says, here's what I'm asking, there's depth, there's roots, there's understanding, and the response, although difficult, is, yes, you're God, I'm not God, you're more committed to my family than I am, you love my children more than I do, you're more committed to my joy than I am of myself, and although it's difficult, I'm saying yes. Although it's hard, I'm walking in obedience because I trust you. That's what Jesus is showing. And I know I've, I've shared this once before, but one of the greatest demonstrations I've had the gift of seeing is when my wife, Kristen, and I did high school ministry and we were down in Myrtle Beach uh, doing a, a youth retreat that I did every summer. And there was a girl, Sandy, who was there, um, who, who was Hindu, and, and we were doing baptisms after a lot of the services, and we would sit down with each of these candidates and, and walk them through the elements of the gospel. Do you hold to the historical understandings that Christ alone is your righteousness, that he alone atones for sin, that he bought you, that he purchased you, that no work's getting you to heaven, yada, yada, all the way through, and then, okay, and I remember sitting with her like it was yesterday, saying, Sandy, do you understand when you go home, your, your, your parents might not let you live there anymore? She said, I do. You, you, you understand that your own brother who you love so much is, is probably gonna disown you. Yeah, I, I understand that. 
you understand that life might get more challenging for you and more difficult in the sense of human relationship. Yeah, I understand that. I see what Jesus did. I want Jesus. I want to follow him. I've counted the cost. I'm saying yes. She's been serving now in missions. God used her to save her brother. She wrote me a few months ago just sharing the joys of what God is doing in her life and I constantly go back to a girl who understood and when she went back, there was a lot of mockery, a lot of ostracism, not allowing her to attend church, not allowing her to gather. Moments of rage, emails to me, craziness. But she said yes, Jesus and then family. Jesus and then siblings. Jesus and then others. And this is why Jesus says, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, let me help you understand. Before everyone leaves here, sells every house, I see you all in the streets begging for bread. It's not what he's saying. That word renounce literally means to say goodbye to. You say goodbye to it. It no longer owns you. God owns you. Jesus owns you. He's not calling for socialism. He's not calling for you to sell all your possessions and go on the street and beg. What he's saying is here, you become a steward of everything and owner of nothing. So everything in your life is now stewardship. So you don't stop your education. That's good, that's right, that's godly. You want to be healthy, you want to learn. But now you steward your education to serve God and his purposes. You don't say, I ignore my family, don't love my family. No, you love your family, but you steward your family to love God and his purposes. You don't ignore all that you have. You use all your time, possessions, talents to be stewarded for God and his kingdom and purposes. There's a shift that happens where you realize all that you have, you don't own, and you're just a steward of. And you faithfully steward what God has given you. We want to take care of our lives. We want to be disciplined and healthy in the physical sense, but we give all he's given us, our house, our cars, our bank accounts, through the lens of how can I steward this for your glory. My wife and I are constantly coming back to this question, almost monthly. What are you doing in your house? To visibly display and show that the possessions are through the lens of the kingdom. And this is for each as the Holy Spirit leads through our conscience to work and act. There's no label. This is what it looks like. But walk and be willing to hear from the one whose allegiance over your soul, over your stuff, over your heart, over your family. And then he says this to end, and I want, I want to, we're going to land the plane here. And it's, it seems a little bizarre that he would throw this in here, but it actually has a lot of meaning and, and help. Verse 34, salt is good. What are you talking about, Jesus? Talking about salt. We were just talking about dying themselves, hating salt. Look, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. 
Jesus says salt is good. Now, we all know salt is good. It's used to preserve things. In the ancient Near East, it was used to preserve because they didn't have refrigeration, so it was very, very common. Now, some of you are going, well, well, salt can't really lose its taste. That's the good thing about salt, why we use it to preserve. Salt, once it's salt, it's usually always salt. It really ever goes useless. It really ever deteriorates. Yet, when I was in Israel, I learned a really cool fact. Out of the Dead Sea, we went, we floated. You could just land the Dead Sea because of all the salt there. Um, there is one type of salt in Israel that comes out of the Dead Sea that's contaminated with all this other stuff, and it actually, if it's not cleaned out well, totally loses its taste and therefore usefulness. And what they'll do is, well, what do I do with this? Do I, do I throw it away? Do I throw it in the, the garden? Well, no, that's going to kill everything. Well, do I throw it in the manure pile? No, that's just compost. Here's the awful thing about salt that loses its saltiness. It's actually totally useless. Like, it's so useless that it's useless. You can't use it for anything. So here Jesus is, is taking that and using that, and he's saying the call to discipleship is not just a temporary decision or thought. It's long-term usefulness. It's not just, yeah, I think I'll, I think I'll take Jesus. No, it's have you kind of the cost? Have you really considered what it means to turn from sin and turn to Jesus and live a life new in him? A life of repentance. Now look, we're not talking about perfection. I say, I don't care how gross and heinous the sin is. If there's repentance and turning from that sin and desire to walk in righteousness, amen. For the Christian, if you're not a Christian, I don't expect that. We don't expect that. But here Jesus is showing us he's not interested in part-time followers that lose their saltiness. He's interested in those that see his value and say, I'm coming after you. The attitude of our hearts of the, towards the Christ of the great gospel that's objective, that we are freely given, freely saved by, but our, our attitude that's subjective towards Christ of that great gospel is, I get it, I'm counting the cost, I want you, I love you, I want to worship you, I need your help, I need your fuel, I need your power, but at the end of the day, I'm dying to myself and all my interests with the Holy Spirit help of God, that's what I want. And I want to pursue you. Now, now, maybe some of you, you've never, never heard this or read this. I'm sure that's possible in this room. I'm sure there are, are some in here who you heard, God loves you, say yes to Jesus, you want a better life, just say yes to him. And you weren't really told the whole truth. Um, now, now don't, get, don't get frustrated and angry at Jesus. Get frustrated and disappointed the person didn't tell you the whole truth about Jesus. And now look at the scriptures, let the perfect word of God read you and examine your hearts and teach you and then make a conscious decision. Now let me just say, are, are our lives filled with moments of failure? Yes. Are there moments where marriage is ultimate over Jesus? Yes, absolutely. If it's not, you're lying, right? Are there moments where children, the joy of your children and their sheer existence is elevated above Jesus? Yes. Are there moments where your stuff gets elevated above Jesus? Yes. But in those moments, true saltiness, there are times where our saltiness starts to lose its taste. Interesting, God uses us for a purpose. We're the salt, salt of the earth, he calls us, right? There are times our saltiness starts to lose its, its efficiency, its effectiveness as sin permeates our lives. And in those moments, the true salt of the earth, the true Christians grieve in those moments, lean back into Jesus, repent of that sin, and ask the Holy Spirit of God for help. God, help me to not lose my saltiness. Help me to persevere. Help me to walk. 
So yes, in those moments of stumbling and falling, you go back to the very thing that saved and secured you and the allegiance that you have to him. And you ask him to help you in that. You get back up and you walk. I always say a mark of immaturity is when you stumble and fall and you stay down and wait till you clean yourself up better and then you ask God, okay, now I'll follow you again. No, the real mark of maturity is in your darkest, deepest stumble and falling, you get up and you turn from sin and walk towards Jesus. And that's why Jesus ends with an invitation. He was ears to hear, let him hear. God is speaking, Jesus is speaking. Don't be like the people in Luke 8 who, although they had ears to hear and eyes to see, they did not hear, therefore received judgment upon themselves. You're hearing the truth. It's being laid before you. Now your decision, you count the cost or say, that's okay, Jesus. Because he's saying here, I have a plan for my glory and your joy, but it's gonna require something. It's gonna require me going after your heart, not just your outward actions. It's gonna, it's gonna mean me digging around in digging up things that might be uncomfortable but lead to a beautiful, well-lit life where you were coal that was turned into a fine jewel. It may be painful, but it's worthwhile. And the end of the road is joy-filling and glorious and helpful. You see him lay us before all of these things. It's gonna mean you watching your heart from taking good things and making them ultimate things. It's gonna mean you following me no matter the cost with the help of the Holy Spirit. Are you willing? Have you counted the cost? Christian in the room, have you counted the cost when you became a Christian? Do you understand the cost today? Jesus isn't shy about it. Because if the answer is, yep, but only when it's convenient for me given my circumstances, or yep, as long as you do what I want in return, Jesus says, then don't follow me. Then don't come to me. He says, in regards to salt, then you'll be worthless. Then you'll just be somebody who comes in, warms a seat, attends some Bible studies, but has no pursuit of me, no joy for me, no worship of me. So he cares about who you are internally. Let's just end with some inventory. Let's take some inventory. Take some stock as we approach the Lord's table. Um, and here's the great temptation for you. You're gonna wanna take inventory of somebody else. Stop it. You. Let's take some inventory. Mike Reed, take some inventory. I don't want to talk about how well your church attendance is. I don't want to talk about when your last quiet time was. I want to talk about your heart because Jesus wants to talk about your heart. This is why Jesus in Matthew 5, I love it, he moves from the external to the internal, right? He goes, yeah, I know you heard that anger is the, or murder is a real big deal. Let's talk about anger because it's not just external conformity, it's internal transformation now. So, 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 you know, murder is external, anger is internal. So if you still hate somebody in your heart, you're still guilty, you're still not off clean. Adultery to lust. The win is not just avoiding adultery. The win is avoiding lust where Jesus becomes the all-satisfying nature of your heart in place of lust. So Jesus always cares about our heart. He cares about what's inside. So Jesus is asking, do you love everything less than me? In your marriage, is your spouse God? Is your spouse ultimate? Do you find yourself finding, if, if, if my spouse would just behave this way, I would have greater joy, greater fulfillment. Then they're in a place that God never put them. And God is not God. 
Are your children God? Does your existence solely operate around how they behave and what they do? And here's a good way to just kind of understand this on the children front. Are, are you imparting to them the things of the Lord? Are you buying the Americanized, Christianized lie that it's just the church's job? No, we supplement, but that's your role. Are you teaching them about the grace and mercy and kindness of Jesus? Are you, and if you don't know how, are you getting around other parents going, hey, how do you do this? How does this work for you? How how do you cleverly and appropriately and helpfully teach your children the ways of Jesus and who he's like and given the ages and where they're at? Um, do, does your stomach govern you? Does your appetite govern you? Are, are, there, are there things in you that, that say, man, I, I'm gonna be happy until the scriptures say something different and if the scriptures say something I don't like then I'm not gonna be obedient. Well, the, Jesus would say, I'm warning you, then you can't follow me. What's going on in your heart? What is ultimate in your heart? Is your job, your vocation ultimate? Is that God? Is it relationships? Is there anything in how you steward your time and your possessions demonstrative of how you view eternity? So guys, as we come to the Lord's table, a place where we look, we're reminded of the visible gospel, the body broken, blood that was shed solely to purchase us to God, reconcile us to God. If you're not a Christian, please don't come, but if you are a Christian, we say come to the table and let's be anything but liars. Let's confess where we need to confess, repent where we need to repent, wrestle where we need to wrestle for the good of the glory of God and joy of our souls. Let's ask him for help. God, I know that this was a lot today. I know that you said some things that were difficult, but I'm thankful that it leads to life, you say. I'm thankful it does us no good to ignore the truth, but to see it and have it laid before us. Father, we take honest stock of our souls today, personally, as families, as couples, as spouses, as parents, as laborers for the kingdom, would you help us? God, we are all in desperate need of the Holy Spirit this morning. Only you can reveal and show the places that are maybe uncomfortable, but God, might we remember in the darkest space of sin where we feel condemned and we feel shame that Christ said, I brought you out of that. I freed you from that. So you're not tethered to that for identity and joy and fulfillment. It doesn't have to be God anymore because those things make terrible gods. Help us, Lord, to pursue you and chase you and worship you and keep you as God. Might you save some this morning. Might some return in repentance to you from their sin into Christ, the one who secures them, saves them, adopts them solely through the work of your son. But God, might we see that the attitude towards that Christ who saves us is one of lordship, not just salvation. Father, shape us into who you want us to be. In Jesus' name, amen.